Friday lunchtime lectures at the Open Data Institute. Hello everyone, welcome to the ODI and welcome to the people online. My name is Ursula DeMarco, I'm the head of startups here. I'm very pleased today to have um, Lizold Knowledge Partnerships for our Friday lunchtime lecture, particularly Martin Boyd and Sebastian O'Kelly. Um, for those of you that don't know them, they, um, their, star their, their charity started two years ago, um, in, um, well, three years ago in 2014. And what they discovered was something really interesting, which was that two million data of data about um, Lizold uh, um, property were actually wrong. So today is quite interesting to think about the data from a, from a different angle. Um, often at DODI, we think about the opportunity of data, um, but equally, it's really interesting to look at what's the risk of wrong data and um, why is it important to um, make sure that the data that's been published and shared is actually correct. So I'm going to hand it over to Martin. Um, the presentation is going to be a roughly 20 minutes. There will be time uh, for questions at the end, so keep them in mind. Thank you very much. Um, afternoon, everyone. Um, uh, we're, 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 uh, Sebastian and myself are, 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 are trustees, uh, as Ursula said, of the Leasehold Knowledge Partnership. We've been looking at leasehold issues for a number of years. Um, uh, we began a data journey in about 2014 when uh, we realised that most of the data in the leasehold sector was entirely wrong. Not just partially wrong, but entirely wrong. So, uh, um, one of the reasons why leasehold information starts to go wrong is that most people talk about building houses or flats. Um, they don't talk about the land tenure, which is what leasehold is all about. Um, so um, most of the data that the builders will collect will be about houses and flats. Most of the data that the government departments will collect will be about houses and flats. But um, leasehold matters because um, it's a particularly unique form of tenure to this country. And it is exactly what it says on the tin, the leasing of a property. It's just like leasing a car. You don't actually own it. The assumption had been that leasehold means cheaper, but it actually doesn't. The most expensive properties in this country are leasehold rather than freehold. So we started looking in 2014 because it felt wrong to us. The whole of the sector was saying, we know about this market, we know the size of it. And um, we, we decided to go and look slightly differently. So we, we, we came up with an estimate and we said, there's not two million properties out there, it's actually five. And the whole sector told us that we were talking complete rubbish. Um, but all we'd done is we'd gone back to look at the census. And it was the last census that was conducted in 2011. There was no statistical concern. They looked at every property in the country. So uh, there was no, no complex interpretation to do. The only difficult part for us was to find the one table out of hundreds and hundreds of tables that would actually give us the right information. So we found that instead of there being these two million properties, there were just over three uh, million privately owned flats 
and there were 1.85 million socially rented flats. But looking back now, we have to accept that our data was wrong as well. We didn't get it quite right. Uh, the, the problem was, depending on where you looked at the census, it gave you different numbers because um, uh, most of the census looked at occupied homes. So we had to go to another table where you start to find the unoccupied homes and um, then, then, then we were able to calculate the number of newly built leasehold properties and that suddenly gets us to 5.37 million. Um, and that was right in some ways, but it was also very wrong in other ways because um, we have a little bit of a problem because of a set of question marks here. As it turns out that we have four main forms of land tenure in this country. Freehold, which everyone knows about. Leasehold. Commonhold, which was something that came about in 2002 um, and has been completely unsuccessful so far. Um, it, 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 it's the form of tenure used for most um, uh, uh, um, blocks of flats in the rest of the world. We don't have it yet. And then what we found, which was really worrying, was these question marks over here. Because it turns out that um, if you have socially rented flats, they don't appear necessarily on the land registry. They do, simply do not exist. Um, if, a, if, if, if a council had historically built a block of flats, they would simply register the title for the block, not the individual flats. So you suddenly end up that you have a problem with these because we called these leasehold in our initial study when we got to our 5.37 million. And all of the, 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 the people in the sector said, no, no, you're wrong. They're not actually leasehold. The problem is they're not anything. They don't exist as far as the land registry is concerned. So when we talk about having robust data about housing, we've already lost over a million properties simply because they're not even there. So everyone probably thinks they know what leasehold is. Um, I mean, that would be a leasehold property in there. It's a flat. Um, those would be leasehold properties, and that's a freehold property. But this is where it went really wrong, because we'd only looked at leasehold flats, or what we thought were leasehold flats. <coughs> but it turns out there are a million houses which are also leasehold. And that begins to get quite complicated because, remember, the whole point of leasehold is you don't own the property. You own a lease, which means you have to ask the landlord for permission if you want to do something on your property. These over here, if they're in a council block, they may be our question marks, so they're not on the land registry. So we, we have a, a small problem in working out how much housing stock we've got in this country because some of it isn't even there. So why are we worried about leasehold? Somebody did this very nice cartoon for us and it explains in a slightly cynical way how it works. That uh, uh, under this system, the person who owns the building may invest as little as 1% of the asset. But they actually control the building. Technically, it belongs to them. It doesn't belong to the people who live in the flats. It belongs to the freeholder. And they get to send out the charges. 
You then have your property managing agent. He then gets to send out his charges. He works for the freeholder. He doesn't work for the leaseholders. The leaseholder at the bottom of the pile is the person who has to actually pay all the bills. They have no control necessarily, but they are responsible for paying all of the bills. So it starts as being an immediately contentious market because the person who's paying the money has no control. And if we don't know how many of these things we've got and how many of them we're building, we don't know how much control we need to provide to help the leaseholders to protect themselves. So there we are. We have our little graph here. So we have the figures that used to exist. The last two major pieces of legislation, are the, there was an act in 1993 introduced by Lord, what is now Lord Young, it was assumed there were a million leasehold properties and all of the systems and all of the structures that were put in place were based on that assumption. When we got to 2002, for some reason, nobody thought the leasehold sector had grown. We were building flats all over the place, but everyone was still <coughs> saying it was a million. And that was the basis on which we introduced the next major piece of legis legislation. And in fact, it's the last piece of legislation that's come forward on leasehold issues. So. All of the thinking about how the legislation was meant to work was predicated on some false assumptions. The sector then um, somehow moved to the belief that there were about two or possibly two and a half million properties, leasehold properties. So um, they weren't very happy when we came along and said it's five million because that meant that all of the regulatory systems that were in place, all of the planning systems that were in place were just wrong. So we weren't exactly welcomed with open arms when we said, oh. but fortunately the government worked with us, and, um, or rather we worked with them, and we got to the point where they decided that officially they would admit there were 4.1 million properties. Um, and they did it under uh, an announcement for a completely different piece of legislation. And you're not meant to be able to read this, Somewhere on here is the um, announcement about um, leasehold going up, doubling effectively in size. And it appears down there as a subparagraph to a, uh, a sub-issue that's being talked about. So uh, uh, it, it, it wasn't uh, exactly, exactly trumpeted as a, as, as a major change, but it does obviously mean that once the government have accepted we've got 4.1 million of these privately owned leasehold properties, it has to start thinking about what happens in terms of planning as a result. So you would have hoped that once government's accepted, we've got four million properties, then we're going to start working on the basis that we've got some real data now and we can start planning accordingly. But the problem is that DCLG, which is the housing department, decided to update its figures um, earlier this year, April this year, and magically, despite the fact that everyone's seen flats being built all over London, um, the number's gone down from 4.1 million to 4. And um, it's, that's happened through a couple of reasons. The f first, first uh, potential reason is that they may have made a, a quite a serious mistake in that they've assumed that 15% of flats are somehow not leasehold. 
And it's technically not possible for that to be the case. So that's what they assert in their report there. The other thing that they do is they say their report is relatively precise. But the trouble is they've allowed themselves a, an increased margin of error of plus minus 300,000 properties. So it may be we've got 4.3 million leasehold properties in this country, or it may be we've got 3.7 million. And that's relatively precise, according to the government. Um, I, I, I'd venture to suggest it's not that precise. So, um, And then we get to um, the London housing strategy. This has just come out. Um, this month, the Mayor's London Housing Strategy. He said, or the London Assembly said in 2012 that they felt there were half a million leasehold properties in London. We told them that they were wrong, we were, we were helping them produce a report at the time, but we didn't have the actual data that we could say this is what it should say. But we did show them the correct information afterwards and we reported there were at least 1.1 million leasehold flats in London in 2014. And yet, here we are in September 2017, and the London Assembly has gone back to basing its future housing policy on believing that there's only half a million of these properties in existence. So, before they even start, they haven't actually got a basic understanding of what it is that they're trying to plan for. So, not good so far. We, in the meantime, have been trying to do whatever we can with data. Um, the, we mapped every single uh, leasehold house sale in 2016 because that's become a particular problem for the government. The government's become worried about it. We are reverting to selling leasehold houses again. Um, that's been um, the, the basis for a lot of the issues that are now being raised uh, in, in Parliament. Um, why it matters. Leasehold is this very odd asset. Um, we've got here an example where the landlord starts off at the beginning of this process, he's putting 5% of the money in to buy the freehold for this site. And then we have 20 leaseholders, they're each investing £100,000 each to buy 95% of the asset of the site. And then what happens is, although the leaseholders are the ones paying all the money to maintain the building and the service charges for the, 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 those services provided on the site, um, it, it is the landlord's asset. So their interest in the building begins to decline. And it particularly declines when the lease gets to have only 80 years left. And gradually... The leaseholder's interest in the building goes down and the landlord goes up. Despite the fact the landlord is paying nothing for this asset, he has only invested 5% of the asset in the first place. So it is something that government has to uh, be very, very aware of because if you don't know uh, what's happening in this market, you don't know what is happening to the interests of the consumers that you've got in that part of the market. So, where do we go? From here, our problem, as we've seen it, is the land registry simply does not have some of the data that we need. Um, it was set up with the words land and registry. That was what it was principally interested in. 
It was not set up principally to be concerned about people owning flats. That sort of needs to change when we're living in a world where 50% of the new build properties going up are flats. When we move on from the very, very basic level of how many of these things there are, the next thing we have to look at are some of the factors that influence what's going on in the leasehold market. The lease terms, rent charges, lease lengths, um, and most importantly, the details of the properties that aren't actually on the land registry at the moment. Because how on earth does society plan for its housing needs if it's got an unknown number of unknowns? Um, that's about all I have to say this afternoon. Um, but I'm going to hand over to Seb in a minute because one of the specific issues we've looked at is um, the problem of data in the leasehold retirement market um, where there are some uh, pretty scary figures around. So over to you, Seb. Thanks for that, Martin. Um, yeah, well, you've heard the, heard the figures there for the, for the, the general leasehold sector. Um, and behind all this is a backstory of exploitation and exploitative practices and extreme vulnerability of the leaseholders in comparison to the power of the landlord who has only a minority financial interest in the block of flats. And we're very concerned that that is addressed and we're campaigning very strongly for leaseholders to be reimbursed to be properly empowered and indeed to end leasehold as a form of tenure in England and Wales, which are the only countries in the world which have it in any great depth. Now, at the retirement side, it is an important thing because we want a healthy retirement market. We want the old to downsize. The kids leave home, there's a big family house, it's pointless that there's two people living in an empty house. I mean, I'm probably an example of this, actually our younger daughter still does live at home, but, uh, you know, uh, when she moves out, it'll be a four-bedroom house with just two of us in it, and it's a bit pointless. So a to downsize is, is a good idea. Most people in this country are downsizing to smaller properties and usually flats, non-designated retirement flats. Only 2% of people aged over 65 in this country downsize to a designated retirement property, and... Uh, in the United States it's 17% and in Australia it's 12%. So we're very small. We've got a very small retirement housing market and it's very understandable. Why? Because there have been a series of scandals in this market. You have had two Office of Fair Trading investigations into it. You've had one finding of collusive tendering going on where pensioners were ripped off when new electronic doors were fitted <coughs> by, by the, the landlord for no reason whatsoever and there have been numerous parliamentary debates and court cases and of course the activity in the press that has often originated from, from us. But another aspect of it is um, the appalling state of resales of retirement sites. I mean it's uh, it is of probably very small comfort to you but you can actually buy a flat in England for £36,000. Uh, you can buy one for about £40,000. And these aren't in blighted areas. These are areas like Sussex or Dorset. Um, uh, the, this is a, a, a continuing pattern of really dismal retirement um, resale prices. And these would be properties which were bought for about 160, £180,000. Ten years further on, they are seriously blighted. And this is information that we really want to get out of the land registry. 
We have a number of problems with getting data out of the land registry. One, it's quite a laborious task to look at the 1,500 or so designated retirement sites around uh, the country um, and uh, collate that. But the other thing is that the land registry hasn't consistently recorded resale prices on uh, for retirement properties because it's a restricted sale. It, properties here are for people aged over 55 or over 60 and as such it hasn't been uh, consistently recorded on the, the land registry. We think we've got about 60% of retirement resales on the land registry so 40% of it is just not there. Um, but we need to get this kind of information and um, we have been doing our best to make it public so it was broadcast on Radio 4 Moneybox um, uh, last Saturday. Um, we're doing Moneybox Live next Wednesday, addressing this issue again, uh, pointing out that retirement resales are, in a, uh, are very, um, can be uh, typically 40% less than the price paid new. is not a popular message to put out there, and the developers um, are not at all happy that we're pointing this out so we're actually delighted that the BBC and the Elderly Accommodation Council has at last come out and said actually I think they're talking sense here and so there is something serious seriously wrong but only when retirement properties have some don't suffer this catastrophic fall um, is there really going to be a healthy retirement market uh, I'll give you a reason for why that is I mean what often people buy a retirement flat because there's a crisis you know, um, the husband's died, widow moves into a retirement property, or couple can't cope any longer with a, large, a larger property, and so move into a retirement flat in a hurry. It's the worst possible motive to buy, to make a significant financial uh, purchase, but that's often what, what drives it. And uh, what can then happen later is um, in these independent living retirement flats where the, 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 the uh, facilities are little more than a communal lounge and a visiting house manager who comes sort of every day but doesn't live in. Um, what happens then is, uh, say, your elderly relative has had a stroke, needs to move into further care. Family then has to pay for further care and the costs of an empty retirement flat. So it can be a perfect storm of sort of financial hemorrhage, really, for families who have these assets. And that is obviously. Um, uh, to, to be avoided at all costs. There are some very good retirement providers out there who do buy back at 95% of the cost paid, um, and that's a, a you know a 5% loss on a retirement property is actually very good news in in this particular sector. It's absolutely even in areas of the country where the property market might be increasing by 16% a year. If you have getting a hit of only 5%, you're really doing quite well. Uh, these are not great investment assets. So a healthy retirement site, I think, or a retirement market, I think, would benefit the entire housing market, encourage uh, downsizing, <coughs> help with issues like loneliness and, um, and care provision, which are essential for, for the elderly, and would generally be a good thing. But we're way off being there yet. Thanks. Thank you. Okay. Well, that's, that's all we uh, had to say. Questions, anyone?
Thank you very much. I uh, just wanted to um, remind everyone that because we have people online, I'll pass the microphone around. It does amplify your voice, so uh, it's still working. Just um, it's for the purpose of people online. Um, would you like to go? Okay, quickly. I see there um, the term of strategies for houses. Now, which kind of strategy are you trying to think about? Say, if you don't have the data, it means how how you plan this strategy? Just identify what are the we, we, we don't know how government has planned its strategy if it's not had the data it, it, it can be no more than guesswork that has been used in the yes, past but my question is is it even in london itself for instance i know that there's some organization at university that do collect data for planning yeah, 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 but, but there's lots of data collected the problem is it doesn't it isn't necessarily the right data lots and lots and lots of data is collected about houses and flats but not necessarily the form of tenure, and that becomes critical to the way that you're developing your overall strategies and support systems. Yes, my question was, and uh, are these centralised or just spread it between different type of government, this type of uh, database or it, data it, collection? It, 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 it's, it's a range. I mean, the, the data should all be within the land registry. The problem yeah. is that historically the land registry has not been tasked with collecting and collating that data. So um, it's, uh, you know, the, the, the information on the, the, the length left in a lease is very, very important because the price goes up dramatically when a lease gets shorter. Um, there is no easy means for a member of the public to go and find out uh, w w what's happening there. There should be. So, um, so even if the marketing, it is it's uncertain about mm. houses. Um, I have a, a kind of related question. So it's about the land industry and specifically about the things you've put up on the screen um, that you would like to be able to find out from there, things like rent charges. Have you had any luck getting some of that information from any other sources? Is there any other surveys, are there local data councils, valuation office agency, all the other people who have an interest in housing? Is anyone collecting there are, any there, there are some small sample sets, but there is nothing comprehensive. The land re We're aware that the land registry at the moment is reviewing um, its processes and leasehold is very much at the top of the list of things that it needs to, to, to work on. Can I just say that, you know, so far as <coughs> looking for resale data, uh, uh, we rely only on the land registry. There's quite a lot of smokes and mirrors goes on about house prices from you know, the general housing market, um, but also the retirement one. Uh, we're not really interested in asking prices of what estate agents are going to put a property on the market for, what people want for a property. All we're really interested in, what is some, what is the price that somebody has been prepared to pay? That's unarguable. So land registry data, when you get it, closes the argument. Thanks. Just a reminder for people online, if you want to ask questions, um, you can do it on Twitter, hashtag ODI Fridays, and then we'll read them out here. Um, so my, my question was about these sort of like non-leasehold, non-freehold, non-commonhold things. So you talked about shared ownership, which I think seems to be yep. sub-leasehold. And I've also seen a bunch of properties advertised where the, the, like the sale price is massively discounted if you're over like 55 or 65. So presumably there's some kind of um, you know, loss of perpetual rights on, on those as well. Where, where, where does that leave people? And there can, can we, obviously in, in, in retirement homes there's an age restriction. There, um, uh, they also uh, uh, 
may have um, uh, exit fees that are, that are paid so that you, you live in a property and as long as you've lived for two or three years in that property, um, when, when, when it's sold on again, um, your, your family only receive a proportion of the value of the asset. So um, that, that, that not, not only may, may the price have gone down, but the proportion that your family receives from that reduced asset has, has also declined. Um, there, are, there are a whole series of subcategories of property type. Um, the most illogical one, and I have no understanding why it's there, is these effectively non-existent properties in, in the social sector. Social sector obviously know that they're there. It's not that they're, you know, they're, they're, they're not physically inside these buildings and you know, they're, they're having services provided but they're missing from a whole set of data that sits within the land registry. So, and the land registry has said that it accepts generally that um, it, it, it has some way to go before uh, the information that it holds is, is, is perfect. I have one question, which is that we talked about um, a lot the implications of um, the wrong data and what the numbers um, uh, how how big is uh, the number of properties that actually um, haven't been rightly tagged? Um, I'm interested in knowing more. What do you think the impact in numeric term is of this wrong data? Um, because we talked about policies being being made wrong, but if we talk about size and numbers, can you give us a better understanding about what's the size of the impact of um, yeah. of yeah. this? I mean, it, it's, it's at a minimum we are talking um, costs in the terms of billions if we don't know what's happening within this sector. Um, if people don't get to discover that their lease has reached 80 years and they need to extend the lease, the price goes up dramatically. So we, we've, we've had um, figures given to us which suggest that the people are overpaying for their lease extensions to the extent of about half a billion pounds a year. In terms of the asset valuation of these freeholds, we get into very, very difficult territory. And there have been suggestions given that we could be talking about a 50 billion pound black hole somewhere in the, in the system. Um, and in, in terms of the costs that leaseholders pay, um, in terms of the, 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 the property management services, um, it, it was estimated some years ago when everyone thought there were about two million properties that, that possibly leaseholders are paying, uh, overpaying by seven or eight hundred million pounds a year. So there's an awful lot of noughts on the end of the possible number that the cost of having the wrong data is, is, is causing. Can I just uh, add to that? And that uh, the, the financial engineering possibilities of leaseholder are really something that worries us a lot. I mean, it's also a debilitating uh, influence on the retirement market that uh, m the majority of retirement sites around the country, the freehold there is owned by uh, an, uh, a murky uh, family trust based in the British Virgin Islands. So you've got this kind of investment in the assets of property, um, which is often, often leads offshore. And the investment in this area is, is by no means clear. Freeholders usually hide their beneficial interest behind nominee, nominee directors. So you have a huge anonymous and uh, sort of under the radar investment in British residential property or English and Welsh residential property owing to this leasehold system, which is completely unexplored. 
given that the data is so flawed that government is working on. I think the 80 year left, is that the marriage? Uh, That's when marriage value is, is, is sure. com comes and into when play. You re -roll it, um, is, that got is that a present value calculation of all the, the years left? of ground rent. There, there, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's one of the factors that comes into it, but there are other factors as well. Sure. Um, the, the good thing about a, le a lease extension, if it's the, the, the two ways of doing it, an informal way, uh, where the landlord will try and increase your ground rent uh, a, 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 and may put other conditions on, and the formal statutory route, where the ground rent is then reduced to a peppercorn. Um, the problem with that is that if you want to go to the statutory route, you face increased legal, legal costs and there is a time delay. The problem we've seen with leasehold houses, and that is an emerging market, is that um, um, what the developers were doing is when you, when you buy a leasehold house, you have the right to buy your freehold, but only after two years. So what the developers were doing is selling on those freeholds before it gets to be two years, by which time your freehold is then owned possibly by an offshore company who's going to ask for an awful lot more money than the developer would dare have asked for. You mentioned something about social housing and yep. the black hole of information there. Could it be that if you think of Thatcher's right to buy a council houses, which is pretty much late 70s, early 80s it started, if you get 125 year leases on those, the people that might be disposing of those assets now in say central London with local authority flats, those flats sort of the sweet spot of where the 80 years is coming up. Yes. And those people might be the least equipped informationally Absolutely. to understand where the marriage value is. Yeah. And that's where the black hole is. Yeah. It, 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 it's a, you know, it is absolutely critical that people know how long their lease is. And the fact that it's so difficult to get there, and obviously uh, a, a freeholder is unlikely to turn around and tell you, oh, by the way, your lease is going to be 80 years, because it, it, you know, he will make more money. Um, if, 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 if he allows your, 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 your lease to, to drop below that 80-year period. So it could, that, those people who I would say are probably most vulnerable, yep. um, they, are they going to get a double whammy because interest rates are so low, so the actual mathematical calculation... Yes, the cost of extending your lease goes up. The, uh, the other thing that, 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 that will happen is that um, mortgage companies are becoming more and more cautious on lending on short leases now and, and, and traditionally the last you know, four or five years you needed a lease of at least 80 years before you could get a mortgage that is beginning to drift up to 85 possibly even 90 years with some lenders now so you, 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 you could turn around thinking oh I'm okay I've, I'll be able to sell my flat and then suddenly discover the only people you can sell it to are cash buyers so the amount of the money you're going to earn for your flat is depressed even further triple whammy enough, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, you've got a PV effect, the people are least educated because they buy yeah. to rent and yeah. we need that data. Yes, absolutely. So the, the big drop in uh, resale value of the uh, retirement properties, could you briefly, probably it's implicit in what you said, but could you just summarise the reasons for the most dramatic drops, please? Yeah. Uh, it's, there's no one single reason, um, but I think the short answer is that people buy retirement houses in a hurry and they sell them in a hurry too. Uh, they buy them because there's a particular family problem and w when they're sold, they're sold usually by executors uh, wanting to liquidate an asset because the, the original owner has died 
and, uh, and they don't want to pay the service charges, which are often quite high, uh, to a retirement uh, property. So they sell it. There's other things that... Um, but that, that still is rather... Uh, that won't account for properties selling for £36,000 or £40,000 that did sell for £180,000. That, there's a whole load of other issues which will come into play there. I'm sorry, I... Um, uh, it's, um, uh, if you're going to move to a retirement site, you've got the whole sort of marketing drive of a new retirement site coming in, which is very attractive. A whole load of people are coming together at one particular time. They can form a kind of retirement community then, which is rather difficult to do on a resale. You know, if you come into a retail, uh, as a, if you buy a resale retirement flat, you know, groups will have already formed within the um, Within the within the community, and and it might be looking a bit tired. You've got the reputational issue of the management um, company. There's one dominant um, property manager in retirement uh, properties. I'm not going to name them, but they have been the subject of an Office of Fair Trading investigation and were found guilty of collusive tendering. You've got one freeholder involved. The freeholders, you know, based in the British Virgin Islands, as I say, there was an arrest by the serious fraud office of this particular individual. You've got this kind of reputational um, uh, malaise hanging over the, the, the volume retirement uh, market. And I think people are reassured purchasing from PLC house builders, whereas they wouldn't be from a sort of high street estate agent selling a resale flat in a now looking now a 10 year old block of flats but it's a it's these combination of reasons which i think have driven down the the prices but i'm aware of um, i mean this is a site called um, burlington court in bridlington there's 10 flats there which over the past five years have sold for less than sixty thousand pounds well that's that's a that's appalling I mean, what other residential property could you possibly have purchased for 160 or 180,000 pounds that is worth that? I mean, Bridlington property market is not great, as I said, but it's not it's not suffered that sort of catastrophic fall. Is there any other question? I've got one from uh, Paul from ODI Leeds on Twitter, um, and he asks. Can you tell us about some of the good and bad practices by landlords around service charges and ground rents? <laughs> uh, tell Paul we haven't got time. <laughs> uh, there, there, are, uh, th th there are a huge number of uh, questionable practices in the sector. Um, the, 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 the most appalling is where the, the freeholder, the landlord, um, owns a number of the companies that actually provide the services to the leaseholders. There is no transparency there in terms of the actual costs that you're getting. It, I think I would say it's, it's this leasehold is the most muddled system conceivable. It is a way by which um, uh, anonymous murky investors who hide behind nominee directors and are often based offshore can hitch a ride on a property purchased by an ordinary homeowner. There are people who buy these leasehold houses, leasehold flats, first-time buyers in the main, um, who in buying this purchase create an investment asset class which is traded internationally. And that is simply not the case in North America and Australia where English law was introduced and certainly not in continental Europe. I mean, I've, I've owned flats in France and in Italy. It is not like that. French people and Italian people know what a flat is. You know you own bits of the land, bits of the roof, bits of the drains, bits of the the corridor and you've got to pay for them and nobody else is going to be involved 
So you either sort it out in harmony with your neighbours or the building's going to, to stall and deteriorate. But it's a very simple system and people understand it. In this country, um, people simply do not understand um, what they have purchased with a leasehold flat. And that, doesn't, that applies not to simply to the lower cost flats. And we've also been assisting near Bankside. Now, near Bankside, the annual service charges there are £18,500 a year. They're not short of a bob or two, but they simply do not understand. I mean, admittedly, most of them are, are foreign nationals who happen to be working in London. But uh, they simply cannot get their heads round, or I think they can now, but it was not easily accessible to understand that they had laid out £8 million quid for a flat and they were a tenant. Yeah. Um, we should perhaps give an example of some good practice, otherwise we'll be accused of cynicism again. <laughs> there, are, there are some very ethical managing agents working out there in the market. The problem they face is that they are competing with unethical managing agents. Um, so uh, uh, if, 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 if you're in the right building, uh, you, you'll be lucky. If you're in the wrong building, um, uh, you'll have problems. And some of the wrong buildings can be owned by social landlords. They do not assume that it's just private landlords who behave questionably. Um, the number of cases where we, we see from the social sector where um, uh, leaseholders receive major works bills of 20, 30, or in some cases the highest I think we've seen is 53,000 um, uh, pounds. It, it seems palpably ridiculous that anyone should be expected to pay that level of bill. Um, because uh, the windows need changing and the roof needs replacing. You wouldn't get those costs in the private sector. Somehow they arise in the social sector. Can I just ask a quick follow-up question? Sorry. Certainly can. Um, how did you both get involved with this? What, what's your, <laughs> your story? Seb, your... your, 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 your well, uh, I'm, I was, um, uh, I've been a national newspaper journalist all my career and I was latterly a property editor and that's how I got involved in this, mainly writing about the scandals in retirement uh, sector. And for my pains, I've been threatened with litigation, I think, five times now, and was a footnote in the Leveson inquiry as a result. <laughs> yeah. And I, I, I came into it because I own, own a flat. We had some severe problems with our landlord. We, we went through a series of uh, uh, tribunal cases and eventually ended up buying the site. Um, but as part of that, process, um, I became aware of some of the retirement sites we have in our community and uh, I knew how hard it was for us as a large, you know, well-to-do uh, uh, residential site to, to succeed in the courts and it's fairly obvious that in retirement sites you have no chance at all. So uh, I, I volunteered a bit too often and I've been stuck here ever since. <laughs> So, so as someone who, who sort of uh, gets into the freehold market, am I buying something I value at this initial 5% or am I buying something on the expectation that I, you know, someone will let the lease drop below 80 years and I'll get a big windfall or am I buying it um, because I expect to overcharge? You know, where, where, where do I, you know, where, where, what's my payback? As depends a dodgy, on your moral uh, compass. <laughs> well, as a dodgy freeholder. You're a, as a dodgy freeholder. Oh, well, we, we, we can't tell you too much, otherwise you might... No, 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 but, I mean, yeah. Because uh, you know, yeah, some of these... It's not a controlled yeah. market. So if, 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 if you buy uh, a, a freehold for £10, mm -hmm. 
uh, and you revalue it on your books at £30, as long as you can find some external export to support that value of £30, that's your choice. The problem is, obviously, if you're holding on the books at £30, you will need to earn an income that will support that £30, and that's where you start to get problems. So we end up with, um, uh, at the moment, we're seeing a particular issue with uh, administration fees, where a number of landlords are beginning to take uh, large charges for doing very little or no work. In the leasehold house sector, we have examples at the moment of some freeholders um, demanding a payment of, is it £100 for carpets? Uh, yeah, for, for, for changing your carpet. And apparently it's not just for changing the carpets in your house, it's for each room in your house you want to change the carpet. So, uh, you know, there is no real justification in that fee, but to challenge it, obviously, is quite difficult. So, so, so even with some of the rights, such as to form a management company as yeah. tenants and to buy back freehold, there's, there doesn't seem to be downward pressure on this market. There, 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 no, I mean the the, the net effect of I, uh, we've we've had numerous pieces of leasehold legislation, all of which were meant to enhance the rights of the consumer. There hasn't been any legislation that's that's been put forward to to help landlords. Um, and despite the fact that we've had all the the leasehold legislation, um, uh, there continue to be major problems. I think a, a good example of uh, the vulnerability the, the, the vulnerability of leaseholders in the courts, especially concerning le legal costs, needs to be emphasised. Landlord can almost always get his legal costs. So there's um, uh, um, a woman leaseholder in uh, Onslow Square who refused to pay £6,000 in legal costs to um, the second largest charity in the world, dignified but naming it, um, who are the freeholders, and uh, they spent £114,000 in legal costs, barristers, grade A solicitors and expert witnesses. She lost the case and, of course, had to pay that bill, or was faced with that bill. Fortunately, we've made a fuss, and the BBC also, and the Guardian also wrote in, hasn't actually become public this, but there was enough, they could see the direction of travel of media inquiries on this. It's now all closed down with a non-disclosure agreement. I imagine she's paying about £30,000, something of that order. But 114000 to run up a debt of £114,000, you would only do that in court if you knew damn well you were going to get that money back. It was utterly unprincipled behaviour. Uh, was that in court or a tribunal? Tribunal. Oh, tribunal, all oh, right. No, the county courts would be much more, um, much more equitable. I mean, okay, you yes. could lose one hundred and fourteen thousand pounds, and we'd lose a court case and and drive bill, but so could they. You know, the thing about her is this woman in in lease, she could have bought, she could have paid for a grade A solicitor, um, a QC, and some expert witnesses. She would only have got back say five hundred pounds of her legal costs, had she won. It's great to say so much interest in the room. Unfortunately, mm. we um, run out of time, but I would suggest to continue the conversation with Martin and Sebastian. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for joining us and the people online. Uh, it's quite um, special for us to have them to talk because they, are, they have been incubated in our startup program in the last year, so the program is finishing. Um, at the end of September, so it's a great celebration to have them here, share their journey. Um, 
And for those, those of you that either work in housing or in a different sector, it's also a really great reminder of how working together with people that are actually using data can help make a case of why open data or the qualitative open data um, release is really important and what the risk of the contrary could be. So apart from um, all the great things that we learned today about housing and leasehold, um, um, also take away of uh, spreading the word about how qualitative open data can have a huge impact. Thank you very much for joining us. You've been listening to a Friday Lunchtime Lecture, brought to you by the Open Data Institute.